Welcome to the Fundamental Health Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Paul Saladino. This podcast is the result of my relentless search to understand and correct the roots of chronic disease and illness. In this podcast, I will share with you everything I have learned about how to live the most healthy and radical life possible. Thanks for joining me on this journey. What is up, you guys? Welcome to another edition of the Fundamental Health Podcast. So I was doing a live the other day on Instagram talking about vitamin A in liver and the potential or lack thereof for toxicity. And somebody in the comments wrote, of course, you're going to support liver and say it's healthy for us. You sell supplements, man. And I thought, wow, if anyone out there believes that I would lie to you guys or mislead people for the sake of profit, then they are sorely mistaken and don't understand my principles, my values, or why I do what I do with my life. Choosing to take a path that I've chosen to buck the norm, to step outside of the normal perspectives in medicine is not easy. And I do it because I believe in it deeply. And seeing that comment also made me think, I'm really proud of what we've built at Hardened Soil. And therefore, I lead off every single podcast telling you guys about it. So know that with the business I've built at Hard and Soil Supplements, these grass-fed, grass-finished, desiccated organ supplements, these come from my heart. These come from the place of my soul, believing fully that a desiccated organ supplement will help millions, hundreds of millions of people by making it very easy to get organs that are difficult for many of us to consume. I believe wholeheartedly in the ancestral use, the anthropologic precedent for these organs, and the actual biochemistry and nutrition that underlies why people get so many benefits of these organs. So know that with heart and soil, I feel no hesitation in telling you guys about it every week because it's something that I'm extremely proud of and believe in deeply. If you look at our mission statement on the side of the bottle, you will see that I fear that as a culture, we have accepted disease and decrepitude as the new normal. And I want to rebel against that. That's what an animal-based diet is about. That's what getting organs in your life is about. So if you are not getting enough organs and you want to benefit from the unique nutrients and peptides in these organs, check us out at heartandsoil.co. We make grass-fed, grass-finished, desiccated organ supplements sourced from regenerative farms in New Zealand. We're developing a US-based supply chain and we believe, and I believe deeply, that this is a great step toward reclaiming your birthright to radical health. We get so many emails from you guys telling us about how our supplements have benefited you that I love to share a review in this part of the podcast intro. This is about beef organs, and this is from Samuel A. I have never taken a supplement or medication that had any noticeable effect. Not only do these supplements from Heart and Soil have an obvious effect, it's almost immediate. Within 15 minutes of taking these on an empty stomach, I had a euphoric blast of energy and clarity of mind. The closest comparison I can give would be a rescue albuterol inhaler for asthma. Besides feeling great all day, I have noticed during high intensity workouts, I feel like I have a third lung. I gave these to my wife without telling her what they were and she had an identical experience. She's now pushing my bottle and this is a person that can't stand the sight of raw meat, having been a CrossFit junkie for 12 years. 
I've tried just about every quote magic supplement on the market. All I can say about your beef organs is that it is life changing. I've convinced numerous people to get these and will continue to promote these to whomever will listen. As a side note, I also want to thank you for your book, The Carnivore Code. That says it all, guys. Like, organs are powerful. Include them in your life. If we can help you at Heart and Soil, check us out, heartandsoil.co. The podcast this week is an interesting one. You guys all know that I did a podcast a few, like last month with Joel Furman. We had a friendly debate on meat eating, plant-based diets, et cetera. And he did a rebuttal. So he had a blog post that he wrote about why eating plants will extend your longevity. And so I am now responding to his rebuttal and we're going back and forth. So this is my response to Joel Furman's response to the podcast. As you guys know, on the podcast with Joel Furman, he didn't have a lot of studies to answer my questions, specifically interventional studies showing the harm of meat. He believes he provided some you can see the studies that he provided in this podcast and my response to them. I continue to believe that there are really no good interventional studies that show that red meat or saturated fat from red meat is harmful for humans. There are some interesting nuances that come out in this podcast. And I hope it is a helpful critique, a helpful sidebar, a helpful mirror to our sort of back and forth discussion of animal-based diets and plant-based diets. I'm going to try and get Joel back on the show, but this is my solo cast response to his blog post, which was a rebuttal or a response to our original podcast. So we're trying to close the loop here and make sure everybody understands all the sides of the arguments. I hope this is helpful. I want to give a shout out to my sponsors, White Oak Pastures. You guys know these guys, whiteoakpastures.com, sixth generation family farm in Bluffton, Georgia, doing regenerative agriculture. Will and Jenny Harris are really the originators. Uh, and are blazing the trail. They're making it possible for so many others and their meat is delicious. If you heard last week's podcast with Robbie Sansom, you know about the importance of regenerative agriculture. You know that you cannot abstain from voting with your dollars and that we either vote for Nestle and Cargill uh, or other multinational corporations, Monsanto, or you vote for small farmers who are doing regenerative agriculture, restoring the soil, recreating ecosystems and creating a planet that your children's children's children will be able to live on. So check out whiteoakpastures.com. Use the code CarnivoreMD for 10% off your first order. Another farm doing amazing work like this is belcampo.com. You can use the code CarnivoreMD there for 20% off your first order. They do grass-fed, grass-finished beef in Northern California. So if you're on the East Coast, check out maybe White Oak. If you're in the middle of the country, either one will work. If you're on the West Coast, maybe check out Belcampo. But both of these farms are doing amazing work in the regenerative space. Anya Fernald, the CEO from Belcampo, has been on the podcast. We just finished a contest, a giveaway with Belcampo. We'll be announcing the winner for that soon. Look for more of these giveaways. We gave away a free year supply of Belcampo meat, a free year supply of hard and soil supplements, and a consult with me. But the folks at Belcampo are doing amazing work as well. As you heard in last week's podcast, check out forceofnaturemeats.com as well. There's a code CarnivoreMD. You'll get you 10% off at Force of Nature Meats. Also want to give a shout out to Blue Blocks, B-L-U-B-L-O-X.com. I love these guys. They're making some of the best, really the best, the most technologically, technologically advanced blue blocking glasses I've ever found. They block all of the green and blue wavelengths. Protecting your circadian rhythms is critical. That's one of the reasons I live in Costa Rica. I love it here in terms of red lights, in terms of morning sun, in terms of evening sun. And 
I don't like going to restaurants at night without some sort of blue light protection for my circadian rhythms. Sleep is everything. Protect your circadian rhythms. Protect your superchiasmatic nucleus. Check them out. Blueblocks, B-L-U-B-L-O-X.com. You can use Carnivore MD for 15% off your order. They've also got red lights, sleep mask, all kinds of good stuff over there, but their blue blocking glasses are amazing. Last but not least, I want to tell you about my homies at The Cold Plunge. Oh my God, this thing is amazing, guys. It's thecoldplunge.com. You can use the code CARNIVOREMD for $111 off. I love this thing. It is, simply put, the most elegant, most affordable, and the most portable cold plunge I've ever found. Um, it uses revolutionary cold technology for powerful cooling, filtration, sanitation. Gives you cold, clean water wherever you want. And it's way better than an ice bath or a chest freezer. It's safe for indoor or outdoor use. Installation is really plug and plunge. Uh, you fill it up with a hose, you turn it on and set the temp. It goes down to 39 degrees and you are all set. You can put it outside, you can put it inside. It is so easy and it's solid and it is really the best bang for your buck cold plunge I've ever found. And I love getting into cold exposure. So this is thecoldplunge.com. Carnivore MD gets you 111 bucks off. If you're in the market for a cold plunge, which I think most of you should be, these really will enhance your life, especially paired with a sauna, thecoldplunge.com. Carnivore MD gets you 111 bucks off. Thank you for listening to the podcast, guys. If you like this podcast, please leave me a review at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to this podcast. It helps us reach more people, and that is what we want to do. This is not about money for me. This is not about anything other than believing wholeheartedly that we understand something about human health that will help millions, hundreds of millions, billions of people. And I, all of us have an obligation to spread this message. That is why we do what we do. It is not an easy thing, but it is meaningful. And I wake up every day and look forward to doing this job. So please help me spread the word. Please tell people in your life about this podcast, about what we do at Heart and Soil, about animal-based diets, if you believe they'll benefit, because life is beautiful. And we all deserve to live it well. And if your health is compromised, you can't do that, which is why I do what I do. All right, guys. Love you all. Stay radical. What is up, you guys? Welcome to the Fundamental Health Podcast this week. As many of you know, I did a friendly, intense debate with Joel Furman uh, a few weeks ago, probably a month ago at this point. And... Dr. Mercola, a friend of mine, reposted it to his channels, and it's gotten a lot of attention, so it's been great. Joel and I had a discussion about the, the potential downsides of animal foods, in his opinion, and uh, we didn't even really get into the potential downsides of plant foods, but I asked Joel in that debate to provide me any single interventional study with red meat or meat uh, that showed a detriment to humans. And he was unable to do it during the podcast, but he assured me they existed. I published the podcast about two weeks after our recording date. And at that point in the introduction of the podcast said that Joel had not provided me with any of those studies because he had not at that time. Uh, a few weeks later, uh, Dr. Mercola published uh, the videos and then Joel Furman sent Dr. Mercola a video or an, uh, an email saying, Paul Saladino was inaccurate. Uh, I did send him studies, uh, and but Joel Furman had sent them to me after 
the podcast was published uh, and he had plenty of time to do it before. So um, in, in all fairness, Joel did send me a response and he did do a blog post in response to our podcast. And so I wanted to do a monologue. Is, is, I don't think this is a word, but I'm going to make it up right now. I'm going to do a monologous podcast uh, in response to Joel Furman's pod, to Joel Furman's blog post. And in the email that he sent to myself and Dr. Mercola, there are 40 references. I'm not going to go through every single one of those references, but I'm going to go through the majority of them and give a response. And I'm going to give a response to Joel's blog post, which I'm going to show in a moment. And I will mention that I've posted about this already on Instagram and tagged Joel Furman on Instagram. I sent him an email saying, come back on the podcast. We'll do a part two. It's not really um, the end of the discussion if I just do a monologue podcast in response to his, but I thought that I would at least get my rebuttal to his response out in a pure form. And then we can have some discussion together in the future in which we talk about all these things in real time. But so this is my response to Joel's response. This is my rebuttal to Joel Furman's response. So I think that the good place to start would be with Joel's blog post and the email that he had sent. So here is Joel's blog post published on April 13th, 2021. Eat plant protein to live longer is the title. And you can see here what he talks about. So I'll just read it. It's a fairly short blog post. He says, scientific research continues to show consuming red meat, red and processed meats, or a high animal protein diet has a profound damaging effect on overall health and longevity. I would obviously debate that claim, but he's making that claim in his blog post. It is vitally important, important that meat in our diet should be replaced or at least greatly limited in favor of foods that are proven to offer protection against cancer, such as green vegetables, berries, beans, nuts, and seeds. I would debate that sentence also. <laughs> I think that the any sort of study that says that they prove that those foods offer protection against cancer is probably epidemiology because there are no interventional studies that have ever shown that or could show that. So again, we're looking at epidemiology. You can listen to the podcast today with Joel to talk about why that is really shaky. Joel goes on to say, this should not be seen as controversial and is supported by an overwhelming amount of data. Well, maybe it is in Joel's opinion, but I happen to think it's quite controversial and needs to be considered. Next part of the blog post, Joel says, uh, long-term studies. Large long-term studies investigating the intakes of animal protein with regard to mortality have consistently concluded that more plant protein and less animal protein is linked to a longer life. So here is where I begin to take issue with the verbiage. It linked to a longer life, right? Long-term studies investigating uh, intakes of animal and plant protein link plant protein with and less animal protein to a longer life. These are all epidemiology. He references uh, studies one to four, which I'll show you in a moment. And then he goes on to say, studies consistently link greater red meat consumption to a greater risk of premature death. Here's an example. Uh, this is a 2016 from JAMA Internal Medicine, which I'll show in a moment. But again, all of the studies that he's referencing here are epidemiology. We talked about this at length on the podcast, but Joel continues to 
misunderstand or at least fail to appreciate how misleading epidemiology can truly be. So let's look at the actual studies that he is referencing here. So I will now screen share the email that Joel has sent with all of these references. The first study is a 2019 from JAMA Internal Medicine, the association of animal and plant protein with all cause and specific mortality. The first word there is association. This is not an interventional study, nor is Joel claiming that it's interventional study, but it's clearly epidemiology. Second study, association between plant and animal protein intake and overall and cause specific mortality. Again, epidemiology from 2020. We'll talk about that one specifically. Number three, association of animal and plant protein intake with all cause and cause specific mortality, JAMA Internal Medicine 2016. That's the one Joel references in the blog post. Again, epidemiology. Patterns of plant and animal protein intake are strongly associated with cardiovascular mortality, the Adventist Health Study 2 cohort. And again, that's done in a group of Seventh-day Adventists who are a vegetarian group. It's more epidemiology. So the first four studies that he's referencing here are epidemiology. And we must consider the fact that there may be healthy user bias and unhealthy user bias confounding these studies. As I've spoken about in the past many, many times, these are not actual experiments. They're observational, longitudinal, usually prospective uh, cohort studies that look at what people have eaten or are eating. Some of them are retrospective. And they try to correlate that. Correlate is the key word with health outcomes. The problem here is, of course, that generally speaking, over the last 70 years, the majority of people who eat more plants and less meat are health conscious, and they do many other healthy behaviors. They exercise more, they're in the sun more, they get mammograms, they get colonoscopies, they go to see their physicians, and they're generally of higher socioeconomic status. It is not possible to control for healthy user bias in these studies. Joel is not a statistician, he has not done this, but he claimed on our podcast that you could control for this, but you can't, that's false. There are many studies, there are many papers published to say you cannot control for healthy user bias. And there's a real possibility that this could be what's going on. These studies can only associate more red meat and less plants with worse outcomes or more plants and less red meat with better outcomes. But it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, does it? Because when we look at hunter-gatherer tribes, for instance, like the Hadza that I visited or any other hot group of hunter-gatherers, they eat a lot of meat, at least 50% of their calories from meat and organs, and they don't seem to have any of the same problems that we have in the West. So is this really what's going on? And if you go back to the podcast I did with Joel, there are many epidemiology studies done in Asia where the paradigm is completely different that don't show these associations at all. So let's just dig into one of these studies that Joel is saying is showing this, and I'll show you why these are so misleading. So let's start with this one. This is the 2016 JAMA paper that he's referencing in the blog post. The first thing I wanna point out is that it's done by Walter Willett and co at the Chan School of Public Health at Harvard, which is notoriously plant biased and receives a large amount of funding from plant-based interests. This is something I've spoken about with Brian Sanders on podcasts in the past. If you're interested in this topic, you can go back to the podcast with Brian Sanders. I will link to it in the show notes where we specifically addressed James Wilkes and his response to Chris Kresser on Joe Rogan. Anyway, in that podcast, you will find an assessment or uh, a, an, uh, an appraisal, 
with a clear presentation of the evidence of the amount of public funding or the amount of funding that the T.H. Chan School of Public Health at Harvard receives from plant-based interest groups, which is just to say that this is not an unbiased group of researchers. However, this is a study done on the nurses' health cohort, um, the nurses' health study, and it goes from 1980 to the end of June 2012. It had 131,000 participants. They assessed animal and plant protein intake uh, by regularly updated validated food frequency questionnaires. They looked at hazard ratios for all cause and cause specific mortality. Now, Joel is claiming that this study shows that meat consumption is bad and plant consumption is good. However, if you read the results, it's clear that after adjusting for major lifestyle and dietary risk factors, animal protein was not associated with all-cause mortality. I'm reading that from the abstract, um, but it was associated with a higher cardiovascular mortality. So that's interesting. People who eat more meat, at least in the study, had an associated higher cardiovascular mortality, but the all-cause mortality was completely the same. Now, how much higher cardiovascular mortality? The hazard ratio was 1.08 for uh, every 10% energy increment. And you can see the confidence interval went from 1.01 to 1.16. P was 0.04. So it was almost not significant, but it just squeaked in there. Um, plant protein was associated with lower all-cause mortality. Uh, so that's interesting. And a lower cardiovascular mortality. So we have to ask the question here, is this healthy user bias? Meaning, are the people who are eating more plant protein doing better because they do other things or because they're excluding meat? or because they're eating more plants and plants are good for us? Uh, it's the question that we have to ask. These are all associations, but I just wanna point out that in this study, animal protein not associated at all with all-cause mortality. A little bit with cardiovascular mortality, but it's an association. And that I believe is where we're looking at these questions we must answer about unhealthy user bias and healthy user bias. So the study doesn't even really completely support Joel's points. Furthermore, if you go in and you really look at this, they say that the plant protein was protective only in people with at least one risk factor. It says these associations were confined to participants with at least one unhealthy lifestyle risk factor based on smoking, heavy alcohol, overweight or, overweight or obesity, and physical inactivity, but not evident among those without any of the risk factors. So they're saying that plant protein was not associated with lower all-cause mortality when people had no risk factors. Well, that's interesting. Shouldn't it be beneficial for people who are healthy and unhealthy at the same time? Why is plant protein only associated with an improvement in all-cause mortality in people who have one risk factor? Well, interesting. It doesn't really hold up to scrutiny when we're thinking about it. So that's another thing that's interesting to note about this study. Now, I want to point out, as I've talked about in other podcasts with Joel and, and, and many others in the past, that there are many epidemiology studies, like the one I'll show in a moment, that don't show these associations at all. And these are generally studies done in Asia where the narrative is completely different, where red meat has not been associated with beer drinking, motorcycle riding, unhealthy behaviors and rebellion over the last 70 years. And plants have not been associated with beaver cleaver types who pay their taxes on time and play tennis and do all these things that people who follow the rules do that may also associate with better health outcomes. In Asia, meat is associated with affluence, which means that we people want to eat meat because it is generally associated with people who have more money or are doing better in their life. 
So isn't it intriguing that in Asian studies, those who eat more meat have the lowest rates of heart disease and the lowest rates of cancer in men and women respectively. I spoke about this with Joel on the podcast, but he negates to really communicate the fact that all epidemiology does not point in the same direction and epidemiology in general is extremely unreliable, which is why I kept coming back to the fact that we should look at interventional studies during the podcast today with Joel. This is one of the studies with Asians and meat. I spoke about it in the podcast with Joel. It's looking at all cause specific mortality. It's looking at a pooled analysis of Asian cohort studies with over 300,000 people. And as I've talked about multiple times, their pooled analysis did not provide evidence of a higher risk of mortality for total meat intake, but it did provide evidence for an inverse association with red meat, poultry, and fish seafood, which means red meat was inversely associated with cardiovascular disease mortality in men and cancer mortality in Asian countries. How do you think about this, Joel? This is 300,000 people. And again, I've spoken about this in the past. I won't belabor it, but this is one of the counterpoints I would make. Why is epidemiology showing us these discrepancies? Could it be because of unhealthy user bias? I think so. Could it be because of healthy user bias? I think so. This is all very misleading and the epidemiology must be considered in the context of the narrative in the country in which it's done, right? This is where these narratives come from and why things like this can be so misleading. If you're interested in healthy user bias and unhealthy user bias, this is a study that you should know about. This is titled Mortality in British Vegetarians, and it's from 2001. I've spoken about this one in the past and called it the, quote, UK shopper study. But what they looked at in this one were 21,000 men and women aged 16 to 18, 89 years old, including more than 8,000 vegetarians. So it's 21,000 men and women with 8,000 vegetarians, pretty good proportion. And they said that British vegetarians have a low mortality compared to the general population. Okay, but let's look at this more carefully. Their death rates are similar to those of comparable non-vegetarians um, who do healthy behaviors, meaning those who have healthy behaviors in their life, right? So that's what they mean by comparable non-vegetarians, suggesting that much of this benefit may be attributed to non-dietary lifestyle factors, such as a low prevalence of smoking and a generally high socioeconomic status or to aspects of the diet other than the avoidance of meat and fish. So this is really a study that illustrates the possibility of healthy user bias confounding epidemiology when we're looking at plant-based eaters or vegetarians appearing to have better mortality outcomes. Again, I brought this up in the conversation with Joel, but this is the problem. Epidemiology is very misleading. Let's think about this. Historically, have humans eaten meat? Yes. Has it been at the center of our diet? Yes. These are very difficult to argue with. These are incontrovertible statements. Meat is at the center of our evolution for millions of years. I just did a podcast with Herman Ponser. It'll be out soon. He's an anthropologist at Duke. He wrote a book called Burn. We talked about the Hadza. I visited them. Herman's visited them. We agree on the fact that for the last 2 million years, the consumption of meat has been at the center of human evolution. Why would this be bad for us? Let's just ask the question. Why would consuming something that made us human, that was at the center of our evolutionary path as humans, 
be harmful for us? That is the question we must answer. And that is the thing that makes these epidemiology studies seem so out of place. They seem so nonsensical. Why would this happen? Is it possible that there are confounding factors? Yes, I believe there are. There is. R is, you get it. There are confounding factor. It is possible that it is happening. And studies like the UK shopper study, which I just showed, and the epidemiology from Asia would argue to that effect. So during the podcast I had with Joel Furman, he said, are you just going to throw out all of these studies? And I made the point that if you have a mountain of garbage, it doesn't improve the quality of your mountain. It's a landfill. It's low quality. It can be misleading. It's certainly valuable, but we should generate hypotheses with that and test it with interventional studies. As I pointed out in the podcast with Joel Furman, the interventional studies that include more red meat in the diet do not show any problems. And evolution is an interventional study. Our history as humans is perhaps the best interventional study with red meat, with meat in general and organs showing that humans thrive on this type of diet. Ethnography, consideration of hunter-gatherer tribes is yet another study. Humans thrive on these type of diets. The cardiovascular health of the Hadza is exemplary. This has been demonstrated many times. Like this study here. Physical activity patterns and biomarkers of cardiovascular disease risk in hunter-gatherers. Herman Ponser is one of the authors here. So these experiments have been done, just not in the same context that Joel is always familiar with them. We need to think a little more. We need to connect the dots. We can't just be so myopic. We can't be evidence limited. We should be guided by the evidence, but we can't be evidence limited. As I discussed in the podcast with Joel, there's also multiple studies that I've shown in the past, replacing carbohydrates in the diet with 400 grams or 200 grams of red meat showing improvements in CRP and markers of insulin sensitivity in diabetics. And there's head-to-head -head comparisons of animal and plant protein showing that neither of them is terribly inflammatory especially the meat protein. And there's interventional studies with meat protein and people with fatty liver showing that both plant protein and animal protein rich diets can improve fatty liver in humans. So where are the interventional studies with meat showing that it's harmful? Well, Joel suggests some mechanisms in his blog that I'll address later on in this podcast, but I don't think they really exist. And just so you guys can see all these studies, I will show you on the screen, the multiple studies showing no problems with red meat when it's included in the diet. These are interventional studies, you can look them up. This one I've spoken about before, increased lean red meat intake does not elevate markers of oxidative stress in humans. And then I will show the other three, there are two plus another one that I mentioned. So, this first one is the one on liver health. Isocaloric diets high in animal or plant protein reduce liver fat and inflammation in individuals with type 2 diabetes. Effects of plant and animal high protein diets on immune inflammatory biomarkers. Let's show that one. A six week interventional trial. Again, neither of them really increased inflammatory markers. Although in this study with the plant diet, the calprotectin, which suggests um, 
inflammation in the gut was a little more activated than the animal protein arm, though uh, it did not reach statistical significance. And um, the last study is one that I find particularly compelling and foreshadows many of the things we'll be talking about later in this podcast, suggesting that changes in dietary fat intake alter plasma levels of oxidized low density lipoprotein and LP little a. This is an interventional study in which they actually did the reverse. They took out saturated fat from the diet. They decreased saturated fat from 28 grams to 20 grams. And they increased polyunsaturated fat to 19 grams from 11 grams. And they found that with that intervention, um, the alterations in the dietary fat intake resulted in increased plasma concentrations uh, lipoprotein, little a, and oxidized LDL. Hmm, those are not good changes. So that foreshadows some things we will talk about a little later as well. But it is clear, um, I think, that when we look at the interventional data with meat, that uh, there doesn't seem to be a large problem with meat um, when it is included in the human diet. So this is what we must be doing. We must be very careful when we are using things like epidemiology and ignoring interventional studies. So let's go back to Joel's blog post and continue from there. In this, he talks about the 2016 study from JAMA, which I showed you guys earlier and talked about the outcomes, how the fact there was no change in all-cause mortality with animal protein or there was no association. And then Joel says, what would happen if the participants replaced some of their animal protein with plant protein suggesting in some way that there may be an intervention, but there's not. This is all data wrangling. Um, he then goes on to say, they analyze data to estimate, keyword there is estimate, how participants' risk of death would change from all causes over the follow-up period if some of the animal protein sources were replaced with plant protein sources. But this is a very misleading uh, set of thoughts, in my opinion, because none of these interventions were actually done. They're wrangling data. They're saying, well, based on these associations, if people made these changes, these are the decreases in risk we would see. But at this point, we are multiple layers of conjecture into an associational epidemiology study. So Joel would believe that these are all very carefully constructed mathematical equations and these are to be relied upon. But for me, this is many levels deep uh, down into the rabbit hole, which resides in a landfill. So. I don't know about you guys, but I don't like to go rabbit holing in landfills too much. I prefer to go rabbit holing in places where rabbits actually live. You're more likely to find rabbits. Uh, I think if you rabbit hole in a landfill, you're just more likely to find somebody's stinky garbage and the rotting spinach, maybe their dirty socks. So maybe an old washer or dryer or something else. So I don't think we should, I think that when you add layers of complexity and you try and do all of this calculations of how replacing animal protein with plant protein with an epidemiology study, you're not in a good space to really be making any sort of uh, strong claims. So Joel goes on to say, higher intake of plant protein sources are associated with better health. Oh, really, Joel? Okay. For example, seeds and nuts reduce the risk of cardiovascular disease, not in an interventional way, perhaps in associations, but we'll look at the studies that he suggests there, and are linked to longevity, and micronutrient and fiber-rich beans are linked to improved blood pressure, LDL cholesterol, body weight, insulin sensitivity, and enhanced lifespan. So I take issue with this, and I just want everyone to understand that the words here are very important to be aware of. The word is linked. 
It doesn't mean there's an interventional study. These very few of these are interventional studies. There's one interventional study here that I'll show you that's kind of laughable, but most of these are again, epidemiology studies and suffer from the same flaws. And I fear that when people like Joel, who I believe is very well-intentioned are presenting these studies, people don't understand what's actually being reported. And that bothers me. These are not actual interventions. These are just epidemiology observations and correlations. Thus linked is the key word or associated. Now in his blog post and in his writing, Joel really takes aim at red meat and says that it's been associated with cancers and says that it's very bad for the cardiovascular system and kind of insinuates or sometimes completely states that vegetarian diets or plant-based diets are associated with better outcomes or lower rates of cancer. But I wanna share a number of studies that call all of those claims into question. The first of these is from um, the Epic Oxford cohort. So this is interesting. The title of the study is Cancer Incidence in Vegetarians Results from the European Perspective Investigation into Cancer and Nutrition, which is called Epic Oxford. So this is an epidemiology study, but if we are, so we are admittedly rabbit holing in a landfill, but let's look at this. Um, the overall cancer rates in both vegetarians and non-vegetarians in this study are, comp are low compared with national rates, interesting. Um, within the study, the incidence of all cancers combined was lower among vegetarians than, than among meat eaters, interesting. But the incidence of colorectal cancer was higher in vegetarians than meat eaters. Well, that's interesting. So there are many claims that we will address later on in this podcast that Joel would make mechanistically about red meat and compounds in red meat, like um, uh, N-nitroso compounds, uh, nitrosothiols, et cetera, formed from the heme molecule, leading to colorectal cancer or uh, predisposing us to colorectal cancer. So isn't it interesting that in this study, we find that the incidence of colorectal cancer was actually higher in vegetarians in a prospective study. Again, it's epidemiology, but it's 63,000 men and women in the UK in the 1990s. So this is not an epidemiology finding that would support something that Joel is suggesting. So it's a little inconvenient for him. Now, admittedly, uh, the incidence of all cancers was um, lower in vegetarians. So is this healthy user bias or is there a protective again, uh, effect of plants? We can't say, but we can uh, make our decisions and try and uh, sort that out as best we can. But I want to point out that I thought it was quite interesting that vegetarians had a higher rate of colorectal cancer in that study. That's striking. And I don't think that uh, we would have Joel tell us about that. Now look at, let's look at one other epidemiology study that I think provides an interesting counterpoint. This is mortality of vegetarians and comparable non-vegetarians in the United Kingdom. So kind of like the other study I showed, the comparable non-vegetarians means people who have reasonably similar lifestyles. And you'll find that um, they said some interesting things here. There were significant differences in risk compared with regular meat eaters for deaths and circulatory disease. It was actually higher in fish eaters. <laughs> Malignant cancer was lower in fish eaters, including pancreatic cancer which was lower in low meat eaters and vegetarians, interesting. And then they said that respiratory disease was lower in low meat eaters and all other causes. But what they found was that the UK based vegetarians and comparable non-vegetarians 
have similar all-cause mortality. So this is again a corroboration of what they found in the, in the UK Shopper study, that there was no difference in the all-cause mortality. There were slight differences in certain cancers uh, based on their epidemiology. I don't know if much of that is terribly remarkable, other than the fact that deaths from circulatory disease uh, were higher in fish eaters. I mean, fish eaters are always associated with better outcomes, but it really, to me, speaks to the heterogeneity of the epidemiology data and the difficulty in really taking a whole lot out of this. But here's yet another study that suggests that maybe there's not a whole lot that we can gather from all-cause mortality in vegetarians and non-vegetarians when they both do healthy behaviors. Yet another study that I think is important to share is an interventional study done in an animal model that shows that animal fat, specifically tallow, which I love, it's beef fat, is protective in um, reducing colon cancer, in colon, colon cancer incidence. So this is a interventional study and the title of the study is Beef Tallow Increases Apoptosis or Apoptosis and Decreases Aberrant Cryptophosi Formation Relative to our old favorite soybean oil and I'll show you guys an interesting study with soybean oil later in the podcast in the rat colon. So that's interesting. And they even say it in the abstract, although epidemiological studies have implicated red meat as increasing colon cancer risk, animal studies have generally not been supportive of such an effect. Isn't that intriguing, right? This study examined red meat components such as beef protein and tallow on markers of colon cancer risk. And what they found, there was a significant uh, protein by fat source interaction for the apoptotic labeling index. There was a decreased number of aberrant cryptophosi, which are precursor lesions to colon cancer, decreased fecal bile acid concentration, and increased mucosal apoptosis, which is programmed cell death, with tallow consumption. And they say this is not consistent with a role for this fat in increasing the risk of colon cancer. There were no significant effects. Uh, no significant effects were found due to protein source or to interactions between fat and protein sources for aberrant cryptophosi. So in this animal study in the rat colon, tallow looked protective and there was no signal or no evidence in the interventional study suggesting that animal protein was harmful at all or produced any colon cancer in the, in the rat colon. So we have to ask, are all of the mechanisms that I'll talk about later in the podcast not relevant in rats or do they just not really happen in mammals, which is what I would suggest, that N-nitroso compounds, heme iron, other putative or suggested potential mechanistic regions by which meat may be harmful actually don't add up to anything, which makes sense evolutionarily because we've been eating meat for so long. So it doesn't happen in the rat colon. I don't think it happens in the human colon either. And I'll show you guys why a little later as well. Last study I wanna show here looks at a couple of things. So the title of this study is Potential Effects of Reduced Red Meat Compared with Increased Fiber Intake on Glucose Metabolism and Liver Fat Content, a Randomized Controlled Dietary Intervention Study. So this is not including more red meat, this is including less red meat and more fiber, looking at glucose metabolism and liver fat in humans. The conclusions, they found that our data indicate that caloric restriction leads to a marked improvement in glucose metabolism, no surprise there. Basically, no matter what you eat, 
caloric restriction will improve glucose metabolism in those who are metabolically unhealthy. But I would recommend that you eat the most nutrient-dense food possible, which would be organs and meat from animals, in my opinion. Um, the marked reduction in liver fat content might be mediated via changes in ferritin levels, perhaps. In the context of caloric restriction, there seems to be no additional beneficial impact of reduced red meat intake and increased fiber intake on the improvement of cardiovascular risk parameters. Hmm. If what Joel is suggesting were the case, why would there be no additional benefit to reducing red meat on those components? Basically, what they're saying is that if you have disordered glucose metabolism and often correlated fatty liver, reducing your calories is going to be important. I would say reducing your seed oils will be massively important for improving your metabolic health, but it doesn't matter how much red meat you eat when you do that. It doesn't have any difference in outcomes. So again, here's an interventional trial that doesn't make red meat look bad at all. Um, and again, I think these type of trials are much more indicative of the actual effects of red meat rather than leaning so heavily on the epidemiology as Joel continues to do. To his credit, he did send me a few interventional studies, which I'll talk about at the end. So I wanna talk about one more thing before we get to the legume studies, which is this part of Joel's blog post. He says, the correlations between animal protein intake and all-cause mortality in long-term perspective studies are consistent with, um, oh, actually, I'm, that's not the paragraph I want to read. Sorry, guys. Many meat-centered diet proponents, I think he's talking about me. I got a little nod. I got a shout out from Joel. Uh, many meat-centered diet proponents dismiss these important studies, he's referring to epidemiology, out of hand, ignoring the careful collection of data and the complex mathematical analysis by skilled epidemiologists that controls for potential confounding factors and detects potentially significant associations. So this is Joel's rebuttal or Joel's response to my consideration of many of these studies as landfill material. But when you look at many of these studies, I just wanna point something out. Uh, if you think about studies like NHANES, which is a very common uh, study, and you look at the actual quality of that study. So NHANES is one study and Joel certainly cited NHANES and epidemiology studies that use the NHANES data in his article here, in his rebuttal. Not all of the studies use NHANES. There are other epidemiologic cohorts that are used as well, but NHANES is one of those cohorts. cohorts. And if we consider, this is, the, this, is, this is the very complex mathematics and skilled researchers doing this study, but Let's look at this article looking at the validity of the US nutritional surveillance, the National Health and Nutritional Examination Survey on caloric energy and intake data from 1971 to 2010. This is the NHANES data. And in this article, you will find their conclusions that in fact, uh, these data are incredibly unreliable and often uh, underestimate or very poorly estimate the actual intakes of the people, the conclusions across the 39 year history of NHANES, EI data on the majority of respondents, 67.3% of women and 58.7% of men uh, are inaccurate. And EI is energy intake data. They are, they say, we're not physiologically plausible 
The improvements in measurement protocols after NHANES 2 led to small decreases in under reporting, artifactual increases in reported energy intake, but only trivial increases in validity in subsequent surveys. The confluence of these results and other methodological limitations suggests that the ability to estimate population trends in caloric intake and generate empirically supported public policy relevant to dietary health relationships from US nutritional surveillance is extremely limited. Let's read Joel's sentence again. Many meat-centered diet proponents dismiss these important studies out of hand, ignoring the careful collection of data, mm, not so careful, Joel, uh, as that study would suggest with NHANES, which is an absolute embarrassment in terms of collected uh, empirical energy intake data, which is in, consistently underreported, but I'm ignoring that and complex mathematical analysis by skilled epidemiologists that controls for potential confounding factors and detects potentially significant associations, which you can't do when your data is garbage. So this is a very important consideration of NHANES and they're very, they don't mix words here. There are horrible reporting with NHANES and with many of the studies that are done with epidemiology, garbage in, garbage out guys. That's all I can say. And to base your entire argument on observational epidemiology, when there's a mountain of literature to suggest that the type, this type of literature, there's a literature about observational literature that says this is inaccurate. Like we saw with NHANES, it's underreported. Over 67% in men, 58% in women, they're plausibly, they're implausibly reporting the amount of data. They couldn't even possibly be eating that many calories they're underreporting massively. It's just not accurate data with NHANES. Anyone quoting NHANES data, especially the energy intake data, the caloric intake data, doesn't understand the quality of their data. And I don't think Joel understands the quality of the epidemiology that he's relying on so heavily. So let's return. So Joel did send one study, which is an, inter an interventional study with legumes. So let's take a look at this one. So this is the effect of legumes, which are beans, as part of a low glycemic index diet on glycemic control and cardiovascular risk factors in type 2 diabetes. And the results are underwhelming, in my opinion. So this is, again, this is a low glycemic index legume-rich diet, meaning that there were multiple interventions here. They're also reducing the glycemic index of foods, and they're including more beans, chickpeas, and lentils in the diet. So the low GI legume diet reduced hemoglobin A1C values by 0.5%. It's not a whole lot. And they compared it to a high wheat fiber diet, which reduced values by 0.3%. So I think they were saying that the low GI legume diet would be better than a wheat diet, which would have a higher glycemic index. But you have to remember that with the hemoglobin A1C 1%, is the equivalent of about 14 milligrams per deciliter on your fasting glucose or average blood glucose over the last 90 days. 14 milligrams per deciliter is not a whole lot. It's, it's a little bit because if somebody had an average blood glucose of 145, they would be down to 130. But if somebody has an average blood glucose of 220 and you reduce it to 210 or 205, it's not really that impressive. So many diabetics have 
average blood glucose levels between 160 and 220 milligrams per deciliter over 90 days. They have hemoglobin A1Cs that are quite high. So 0.5 is not really the effect we're looking for. It certainly will change it, but there are many things I think that could have a much more profound effect. So they're saying that the relative cor coronary heart disease or cardiovascular heart disease risk reduction on the low GI diet was 0.8%. Uh, the respective CHD risk, not a whole lot, owing to a greater relative reduction in systolic blood pressure on the low GI legume diet compared to the wheat, the high wheat fiber diet. Again, we're looking at 4.5 millimeters of mercury, guys. That's not a lot when your blood pressure is 160. So these are not magical things. There are slight improvements in these interventions, which could be accounted for by lower calorie diets when people are eating more fiber, which perhaps fills them up. But most of you have eaten beans in your life and understand the ramifications of eating beans, which are often gas, bloating, and other problems for humans. And I've talked about the problems of beans many times uh, in, my, uh, in my content with anti-nutrients, et cetera. So this is the extent of the effect when we include more beans. Again, for me, it's pretty underwhelming another interventional, excuse me, observational trial that's an association. Bean consumption is associated with greater nutrient intake. Well, that's interesting. Reduced systolic blood pressure, lower body weight, smaller waist circumference. But this is from NHANES. Again, this is an association, but we've talked about the problems using NHANES data. So this is an illustration of the fact that Joel may or may not be appreciating uh, the problems with NHANES data. But um, again, the improvements here were pretty meager. So um, if you look at the actual effect sizes, they're pretty small. And the fact that it's associated with greater nutrient intake could account for many of it, or perhaps if there's a decrease in calories. And this is epidemiology. So let's just leave it at my assertion that the data with nuts and seeds and beans is not terribly impressive for longevity or other health outcomes. These are not magical foods, unless you're using the sixth grade rhyme and the fact that they make you toot, in my opinion. So, I mean, let's be honest, when you were in the sixth grade, farting was fun. So maybe beans were magical then, but I think for human health and longevity, it's pretty, pretty shaky ground to, to claim that they're gonna help with your longevity or your overall health. They're certainly not gonna give you a whole lot of nutrients. And if you listen to the podcast that it was Stephen Gundry recently, you will know that Stephen Gundry asked the probing question, which was why does Joel Furman pressure cook his beans? Because he clearly understands that there are anti-nutrients in the beans, specifically lectins and other things that should be detoxified. Why would you eat beans when you could eat meat and get the same nutrients or more nutrients or organs? That's the question I'm always asking. And Joel's response would probably be, we'll see if he does a part two. Well, meat is associated with all these bad things and has all these mechanistically plausible things that could be harmful for humans. As we saw in the animal models, a lot of those don't really add up, but most of the plausible mechanisms by which meat causes harm in humans are centered around colon cancer. So we can dive into that now and show why much of that doesn't hold up to specific scrutiny either. So let's go back to Joel's blog post. 
the correlations between animal protein intake and all-cause mortality in long-term prospective studies are consistent with other observational studies on specific diseases. Mm, I would disagree with that because the correlations between animal protein intake and all-cause mortality in long-term prospective studies, as we showed, are not always bad. There were multiple studies that Joel even listed in his bibliography that didn't show that at all. But he nevertheless, he goes on to say, they're backed up by laboratory studies that have uncovered the plausible cellular and molecular mechanisms behind the correlations. Okay, let's entertain these thoughts, Joel. High animal protein intake excessively elevates insulin-like growth factor one, which promotes cancer development. That is a false statement. Uh, high animal protein does not excessively elevate IGF-1. I think that Joel doesn't understand how IGF-1 works. And then to say that IGF-1 promotes cancer development, that's not true either. Uh, that's not been shown conclusively in the research. So in the most respectful way, allow me to suggest the following things. Um, if you are going to limit your animal protein and not use synthetic plant-based protein supplements, you will look um, very skinny and not have a lot of muscle mass. Again, um, this is just meant to be an illustration, but this is what Joel Furman looks like. And if you've seen pictures of Michael Greger, he is equally skinny. So if this is what low IGF-1 looks like, I don't want low IGF-1. Uh, we know that insulin-like growth factor one is necessary for muscle mass and muscle tone and probably something we should have on and off. I've done many discussions with James Clement about this. I've talked to Dr. Mercola about this. I've debated many people on this. And when I was on a podcast with um, Stephen Gundry, he asked me, or I asked him to guess what my IGF-1 levels were. When I was eating a carnivorous diet, that is no fruit, my fasting IGF-1 was less than 100. So it was probably less than Stephen Gundry's because I was in ketosis and I hadn't eaten in a while. So IGF-1 will go up when you eat meat, but IGF-1 will go up when you eat any protein because leucine triggers IGF-1 to go up. Well, leucine also triggers muscle growth and muscle repair. And those are things you want. So I would like to compare my IGF-1 to Joel Furman's and maybe we can do that on the next podcast, but I bet they're essentially the same. Might, mine might even be lower. So the notion that excess animal protein or large amounts of animal protein consistently elevate your IGF-1 are false. When you eat something, your IGF-1 will go up. If there's something in carbohydrates that are gonna raise that IGF-1 or raise or leucine. But the other question I have is in all of these vegans who are plant-based, what is their IGF-1 if they're bodybuilders? I suspect that people like um, Nimai Delgado, who is a plant-based bodybuilder, uh, I will not comment on whether or not you can achieve this physique. Well, I should comment on it, I suppose. I personally don't believe you can achieve that level of muscle math without anabolic steroids. Nimai says he does not use anabolic steroids. Uh, Nimai certainly uses synthetic plant proteins. Let's compare my IGF-1 to Nimai Delgado's. This is a completely plant-based individual. So this is the question. I asked the question on um, social media a while ago, please show me the vegan or vegetarian 
who doesn't use synthetic proteins, who has the amount of muscle that I do or that Nima Delgado does. Most vegans who have this much muscle, I believe are either using synthetic steroids. I can't corroborate that, but I don't, again, I don't believe you can achieve that physique without steroids or SARMs. And they're using synthetic protein powders, which are full of leucine and are full of processed pea protein or hemp protein, which concentrates leucine. Well, no matter what you do, when you add leucine to your body, you're going to trigger IGF-1 and mTOR. And I don't believe that the type of protein you use is important. It's the amount of leucine that you're putting in your body, which can be beneficial. That's going to raise IGF-1 no matter what you do. And so we come back to the original point, which is if low IGF-1 is a physique like Michael Greger or Joel Furman, I don't want it. Most of us don't want it. We can't live our lives like that. It's too skinny. We don't have the muscle mass to do the things we want to do. If you are curious about the relative actions of insulin and leucine on the mTOR complex, which is connected with IGF-1, this is a great study to be aware of. It looks at the actions of exogenous leucine on mTOR signaling and amino acid transporters in human myotubes. And what you find when you actually look at the data in this paper is that both insulin and leucine trigger mTOR uh, this graph is leucine, this is insulin, but insulin does it more and insulin does it for longer. So if you are going to avoid eating protein in your diet, you're going to have to replace that protein with something else. And you're not just going to eat all fat. You must include something that is going to trigger insulin, presumably. Very few of these plant-based diets are low-carb. And if you did a low-carb plant-based diet, you'd pretty much be left with lettuce and olive oil. That doesn't sound very good to me. I don't think many humans are going to thrive on lettuce and olive oil. But you must replace it with carbohydrates, which are going to stimulate insulin. And guess what? Insulin triggers mTOR as well. Insulin, IGF-1, both trigger mTOR, the mammalian target of rapamycin. They share receptor sites on the cells. So anyone who says that animal protein is uniquely triggering mTOR doesn't understand that insulin does it more and insulin does it for longer. So there's a balance here and I've spoken about this multiple times, but my challenge to Joel would be, what's your fasting IGF-1? Let's compare it with mine. Let's get Nimai Delgado, the plant-based bodybuilder who may or may not be on steroids, but certainly uses synthetic proteins. Let's check his IGF-1 and we'll go from there. While we're at it, I'd like to also check the visceral fat of many vegan advocates. Maybe we can get Joel Kahn to participate in the study. Uh, I'd like to get Joel Furman's visceral adipose. And I'd like to look at many other vegans' visceral adipose tissue and compare that to the amount of seed oils in their diet, which many plant-based advocates don't think are harmful at all. So um, yeah, maybe we can get Garth Davis, another vegan advocate to share his visceral adipose. I don't think they'll do it. In fact, I invited Joel Kahn to come on the podcast for a debate after the Joel Furman one and Joel Kahn has not responded. So keep trying. Now let's go back to Joel's blog. Next point, research on nutrient sensing pathways that respond to protein intake suggests reducing essential amino acid intake, i.e. reducing animal protein promotes longevity. That statement just doesn't make any sense from the beginning. Essential amino acids are essential for a reason. They're essential because they help you build enzymes and proteins. Why are we reducing essential amino acid intake will result in longevity? Only if you're so mixed up about the actual actions 
of mTOR and IGF-1 or insulin and IGF-1 at the cell surface and leucine and triggering, triggering mTOR. Let's look at Joel's CGM. Let's look at Joel's fasting insulin. As I spoke about on the podcast with Joel, my fasting insulin is extremely low and insulin triggers mTOR more than leucine, but leucine will do it and it's a good thing. The references that Joel is mentioning here are a couple of epidemiology studies, specifically one done by Walter Longo, which is absurd in its conclusions. He does have a note here. He says, note that elderly require more protein than young adults and has these other references. So let's dig into this and investigate these claims. Specifically, I want to talk about this paper by Walter Longo, which is very strange. So low protein intake is associated with a major reduction in IGF-1 cancer and overall mortality in the 65 and younger, but not older population. What? Why would our physiology change at the age of 65? This has the word associated in the title. So again, it's epidemiology. But when you look at the conclusion, what they say is, that respondents aged 50 to 65 reporting high protein intake had a 75% increase in overall mortality and a fourfold increase in cancer and diabetes during an 18 year follow-up period. Hmm, that sounds like it potentially could be more unhealthy user bias. And we must call this into question when their next sentence is, these associations were either abolished or attenuated uh, if some of the proteins were plant-based doesn't make a whole lot of sense either. Protein is protein. Uh, perhaps they're referring to the fact that plant-based protein has less leucine. Leucine is important for muscle growth. Then they go on to say, conversely, in respondents over the age of 65, high protein intake was associated with reduced cancer and reduced overall mortality. What? So you hit 65 and suddenly higher protein becomes good for you? No. This is the problem with epidemiology. This makes no sense. These are telling us about the narrative. It's that in people over 65, most likely high protein began to associate with healthy behaviors. People over 65 realized, hey, I've got osteoporosis. I wanna keep my muscles. And the people who, when they were younger, were trying to be vegetarians or vegans or limit their protein realized, I gotta eat some darn meat. And the people who were eating meat were the people who had healthy behaviors and it was associated with reduced cancer and overall mortality. But for Joel to suggest that these findings can tell us clearly that reducing protein is associated or is linked with more longevity is absurd. It's just absurd. That study makes absolutely no sense. It's just, I don't know how Walter Longo even published that study. On the podcast that he with Joel, I went deep down the rabbit hole of blue zones. I don't need to re- hash any of that here. I showed multiple studies showing that the blue zones concept is very misleading, oftentimes completely false. There are so many regions of the world where people live long, healthy lives and eat tons of meat, whether it's Hong Kong or Iceland or populations like the Hadza who lives just as long as us when you correct for infant mortality. 
they just don't understand this. And then when you look at the studies like the sperm quality in Loma Linda where they eat tons of vegetables and it's abysmal, doesn't make any sense. When you look at the Mormons in California and you compare their longevity to Seventh-day Adventists, the Mormons and the Seventh-day Adventists have the same longevity, but the Mormons eat meat and the Seventh-day Adventists don't. It's the behaviors that these studies are showing over and over and over that are associated with higher longevity, but they get wrapped into the vegetarian ideology and it's false. It's just misleading because you look at studies like the sperm quality in Loma Linda, it's bad. Clearly excluding meat from your diet including more plants is not correlated with all good health outcomes at all. Mormons live just as long. Maybe it's the shunning alcohol and tobacco and having community and a shared communal belief that's actually leading people to live longer. Maybe it's not the concept of blue zones being places where people eat lots of beans. Because if you look at places like Icaria, I talked about this with Mary Ruddock on the podcast, or Sardinia, they eat tons of meat and animal products. These are blue zones. Okinawa, I spoke about this on the podcast with Joel, but it's so profound that it bears repeating. This is a study called Nutrition for the Japanese Elderly. And you can see it looked at the diets in Okinawa. As I scroll down to the highlighted part, which will be there for emphasis, they say, unexpectedly, we did not find any vegetarians among the centenarians. What? Yet Okinawa is advanced all the time by plant-based advocates as an illustration of blue zones, but none of the centenarians were vegetarians. Isn't that interesting? I don't see that in many of these analyses. So blue zones are not even worth talking about more. I've done a whole podcast on blue zones with Tommy Wood. We'll link to it in the show notes. I've gone hard on this topic on the podcast. Let's leave it at that. Let's go back to Joel's blog. Next point the pro-inflammatory effects of dietary saturated animal fats. Well, that's interesting, considering that I showed a study earlier in this podcast suggesting that when saturated fats are reduced and polyunsaturated fats are increased, there was more oxidized LDL and more LP little a. That doesn't sound consistent, Joel. But Joel has three references here that he suggests will corroborate the assertion that saturated fats from animals are inflammatory. Let's look at one of Joel's sources for this. I think the best paper that he advances is this one, the capacity of foodstuffs to induce innate immune activation of human monocytes in vitro, it's in the test tube, is dependent on food content of stimulants like toll-like toll receptors two and four. So we're talking about the immune system, we're talking about activation of the immune system by foods in a test tube. But when you actually look at this paper, what you find is that beef and lamb did not induce any activation of toll-like receptors or any uh, cytokine secretion by monocytes. Isn't that interesting that, uh, that Joel doesn't appreciate that? The pork did, well, that's interesting. Turkey did a little bit, but not in another study. The sausage didn't. Chicken nuggets didn't, which is surprising. Pork pie didn't. Egg didn't. Milk one and milk two didn't at all. Hmm. The only thing that induced cytokine secretion was pork and one of the two turkeys. There was no beef 
and no lamb inducing any cytokine secretion in this study. Now, interestingly, chocolate sends cytokines off the chart. Didn't mention that. Bread actually was significantly higher than most of the animal foods. And this is a study that Joel is citing. Ice cream was problematic, okay? One yogurt was, but the other one wasn't, okay? Is it the sugar or is it the actual cheese? And then the hard cheeses and soft cheeses did. So that's interesting to me. I've often said that many people do not tolerate dairy or is it the mold that is involved in the processing of these cheeses that's triggering a cytokine response? But we must be aware of the fact and we must be honest in our reporting here and appreciate that beef did not induce an immune response in this study or lamb. I've often said in most of my materials that pork is something many of us should be aware of because it's not fed the right foods. I'm not a huge fan of most pork. So if you look at this, this is a pretty shaky study for Joe to, for Joel to base any of his reporting on. This is TLR2, so toll-like receptor 2 stimulants, and you can see many of the same findings. Beef and lamb, nothing. Turkey 1, some. Turkey 2, nothing. Sausage, it's essentially the same graph as before. So this is the study that Joel is using to suggest that saturated fats or animal foods are inflammatory. That's, that doesn't really show that at all. The other study that Joel, the other two studies that Joel points out to corroborate this are one here, a high fat meal induces low grade endotoxemia, evidence of a novel mechanism of postprandial inflammation. So many plant-based proponents will point out that in people who are metabolically unhealthy, when you give them saturated fat in the form of butter fat, they get low grade endotoxemia after the meal. I've spoken about this multiple times in the past and think it generally has to do with the fact that saturated fats can create lipid rafts uh, in the gut or can be involved in lipid rafts in the gut and people who have underlying dysbiosis. So if your gut is sick and you eat saturated fat, that may increase postprandial endotoxemia, but does it happen in people who don't have gut issues or don't have dysbiosis? It really doesn't. There's not a lot of good evidence that saturated fat is harmful for the gut in any way, shape or form or induces postprandial endotoxemia in a healthy population. These are generally studied in unhealthy populations that already have dysregulated guts. And that I don't think is a great model for this. Certainly in some people, if you are getting postprandial endotoxemia, you may want to limit saturated fats, especially saturated fats from things like butter fat, which is the main one that's been studied. I'm not aware of anyone studying tallow in these situations. Again, this begins to point to, is butter fat problematic for some people who have metabolic dysfunction and underlying gut issues? Potentially, but fix your gut issues, fix your, fix your metabolic health, and I think you'll be fine. But this is really the only shred of evidence that I've seen that saturated fat from animal foods, specifically in this case, butter, could be harmful for humans or at least create lipid rafts and endotoxemia but it doesn't always happen in people if you don't have underlying dysbiosis. I think it's generally a function of the quality and the underlying health of the gut, not the problem with the saturated fat. The next study that Joel cites is an example of that, exchanging saturated fats for omega-6 polyunsaturated fats in a mixed meal may, de may decrease postprandial lipemia and markers of inflammation and endothelial activity in overweight men. What about in healthy men? What if you have healthy men who don't have 
dysbiosis, would you get the same effect? I don't think so. That's an interesting study that we can dig into in the future. But generally, my thinking on many of these studies with saturated fat is they all use butter fat. I would love to see someone tallow reproduce this. And I would love to see anyone reproduce it in healthy men who don't have underlying disorders in their gut, specifically dysbiosis. So we know the way for people to get metabolically healthy. And in my opinion, it's avoiding seed oils, which is what Joel would advocate for according to the study and avoiding processed sugars. And so that will also help your gut get healthy. I think there's a bi-directional communication between the gut and our metabolic health. And in people who develop metabolic dysfunction, I think there is a tendency toward dysbiosis in the same way. And as I talked about in the past, animal models suggest that linoleic acid could also be causing dysbiosis. Studies such as this one in animal models are what I would draw that conclusion from. They're saying that omega-3 fish oil attenuates omega-6 polyunsaturated fatty acid-induced dysbiosis and infectious colitis. So in these animal models, they can induce dysbiosis and colitis with omega-6 polyunsaturated fats, but it impairs LPSD phosphorylation causing sepsis. So using fish oil to treat omega-6 cause problems didn't result in good things in animal models. So if this carried over to humans, we would potentially have a situation where excess linoleic acid, excess omega-6 polyunsaturative fats could contribute to inflammation of the colon, dysbiosis of the colon, and using excess omega-3 could cause problems with lipopolysaccharide. That is what causes endotoxinemia leading to other problems. So all around badness in animal models, at least when we use omega-6 fatty acids in terms of the gut. So going back to Joel's blog post, I really think that he has not substantiated pro-inflammatory effects of dietary saturated fats. He unfortunately continues uh, down the, the rabbit hole within the landfill claiming that there are pro-oxidant and pro-inflammatory effects of excess heme iron, which is not true. This has been demonstrated only in calcium deficient animal models. When you replace calcium in rats and you give them adequate calcium, there's no pro-inflammatory or pro-oxidant effect of excess heme iron. And then he goes on, these are kind of linked to say, cooking produced carcinogens in meat, such as heterocyclic amines and polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons genotoxic and nitroso compounds produced from processed meats, uh, and then detrimental effects of carnitine and choline on the gut microbiome that promote inflammation. There he's referring to TMAO, which has long been debunked. Uh, news to Joel, apparently, but we'll dig into all of that now. The two studies that Joel would use to substantiate his claim of heme iron being problematic are risks of copper and iron toxicity during aging in humans, well done meat intake, heterocyclic amine exposure and cancer risk. These are both epidemiology, unfortunately. Uh, it's very hard to look at the mechanistic studies here with any sort of reliability, but he's again leaning on epidemiology, which as we know can be quite confounded by healthy user bias and unhealthy user bias. So those are not terribly useful studies to substantiate such a, 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 I don't know, a strong claim to say that 
There's pro-oxidant and pro-inflammatory properties of excess heme iron, which is in fact the heme iron that humans use to make red blood cells and is essential for all life and is the iron that is really the way to correct iron deficiency anemia in humans. I don't know, Joel, that doesn't seem to hold up in my book. When we are talking about mechanistic avenues for meat and cancer, this is one of the best reviews I've seen. It references the October 26, 2015 IARC summary and notes that many of the putative or suggested mechanisms by which red meat may cause cancer don't hold up to scrutiny. So the working group cited supporting evidence for multiple meat components, including those formed from meat processing, such as N-nitroso compounds, heterocyclic amines, and the endogenous compound heme iron. So these are all the ones that Joel points out in the blog post. The mechanistic action for each of these components is different, and so it's critical to evaluate the evidence for each component separately. And they say, um, the evidence from in vitro studies utilize conditions that are not necessarily relevant for normal dietary intake and thus do not provide sufficient evidence that heme exposure from typical red meat consumption would increase the risk of colon cancer. So when we're dealing with heme, many of the in vitro studies use massive amounts that are not, that are not reproduced even if we're eating two pounds of meat per day like I do. Animal studies utilized models that tested promotion of pre-neoplastic conditions, pre-cancerous conditions, utilizing diets low in calcium, like I said, high in fat combined with exaggerations of heme exposure that in many instances represented intakes that were orders of magnitude, that is 10 to 100 times above normal dietary consumption of red meat. So you can't use calcium deficient rat models with massively orders of magnitude higher red meat consumption in an animal that doesn't even eat red meat to, to say that it promotes cancer. Uh, and you can't use in vitro studies either. Finally, clinically, clinical investigation suggests that the type of N-nitroso compounds, these NOCs formed after ingestion of red meat in humans, consists mainly of nitrosyl iron and nitrosothiols, products that have profoundly different chemistries from certain N-nitroso species, which have been shown to be tumorigenic, tumor promoting, through the formation of DNA adducts. In conclusions, the methodologies, the methodologies employed in current studies of heme have not provided sufficient documentation that the mechanisms studied would contribute to an increased risk of promotion of preneoplasia or colon cancer at usual dietary intakes of red meat in the context of our normal diet. So you can go through and read the whole paper if you wanna dig into all of the details there, but I think that the counterpoints there are quite clear. When we're discussing heme iron, it's in vitro studies, orders of magnitude above what we would do. Animal studies include calcium deficient rat models, and nitroso compounds formed in the cooking of red meat or the processing of red meat are not actually the N-nitroso compounds that have been shown to be tumorigenic or promoting of colon cancer. And these mechanisms just don't really add up to scrutiny. Why would meat be causing cancer, especially cooked meat, when it's something that humans have been eating for millions of years? We've certainly been cooking meat for 500,000, if not three quarters of a million years. Let's just use a modicum of common sense and think, why would this be promoting cancer?
to really drive that point home, I want to share one of the studies that Joel references and show why these DNA adducts are not really a reliable indication of colorectal cancer. So title of this study looks problematic. Red meat enhances the colonic formation of the DNA addict O6-carboxymethylguanine implications for colorectal cancer risk. This is an in vitro study, okay? Um, and well, it was originally in vitro and then they did volunteers. But if you look at the end of this paper, they'll talk about some of these adducts. So the use of adducts as markers for genotoxicity and cancer risk is well established. But human color colorectal cancer tissue has long been known to contain O6-methylguanine and 7-methylguanine, which arise from exposure to methyl aging agents, such as some NOCs. But is it the N-nitrosal compounds formed in meat? Not really the ones, as they talk about in the other review, that are formed. Those are not the same NOCs that have been shown to be problematic. Interestingly, they go on to say N7-methylguanine is non-mutagenic, and O6-methylguanine is repaired by O6-alkylguanine DNA transferase. Again, this is all quite esoteric and a mouthful, but the point is that many of these DNA addicts are repaired. They go on to say that O6-CMG, which is the, the one they're focusing on this paper, is not repaired, therefore could be expected to be present in greater quantities in human tissue. Although previously assumed to be non-mutagenic, we have recent in vitro evidence that O6-CMG is in fact potent mutagen producing G to A transitions in DNA and G to T transversions in adducted P53 DNA. Basically what that is saying is that in vitro, they think O6-CMG, which is O6-carboxymethylguanine is mutagenic, but at what concentrations? So if you really dig into this, you find that the concentrations are orders of magnitude over what might be formed in the gut. Again, this is the problem with much of this research. They are using inconsistent in vitro evidence that is using orders of magnitude higher levels of DNA addicts, many of which are actually repaired in the gut by KRAS and other genes, as they talk about in this paper, and the NOCs, the N-nitroso compounds that are formed in meat are not actually the problematic ones based on what we've learned in animal models. So much of this research about red meat being harmful, the putative mechanisms are just really shaky. So again, this ground, this evidence that there are plausible mechanisms by which red meat may be harmful for humans gets shakier and shakier by the minute. Let's go back to Joel's blog post. We talked about genotoxic and nitroso compounds and how they're not so genotoxic who is eating processed meats anyway? Heterocyclic amines, paracyclic, polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, not a real problem at levels found in most meat consumption in meats. Pro-oxidant, pro-inflammatory properties of excess heme iron, we talked about that. The only thing left here is the detrimental effects of carnitine and choline on the gut microbiome that promote inflammation. Ooh, this is the big bad TMAO. Some of you may remember from the episode of The Doctors that I did that uh, Joel Kahn, not Joel Furman, but Joel Kahn claimed to be a world expert on TMAO. TMAO is trimethylamine oxide. It is formed in the gut. Well, it's formed in the liver after FMO3, which is an enzyme acts on TMA, which is trimethylamine. 
Trimethylamine is formed in the gut when we eat choline and carnitine, very valuable things for humans found in meat. Choline is important for brain development, acetylcholine, phosphatidylcholine, the membranes of your cells. Carnitine is an antioxidant and it's probably a longevity promoter being found in meat, the carn, carnid kind of prefix there. But plant-based advocates seem to think that these things are harmful for humans or that we should limit choline consumption because it results in TMAO, which has been associated, keyword is linked, associated with worse outcomes. But again, when we dig into this data, it's just a total scam. So we could start with this paper. Again, many of these, um, many of these are a little bit esoteric in their actual titles, but I'll try and walk you guys through some of it. This is just perhaps the most important paper to consider because it points out that it's a reverse causation. So they say assessment of causal direction, you don't know which direction the arrow of causality is going here, between gut microbiota dependent metabolites, that's choline and carnitine, and cardiometabolic health. This is a bi-directional Mendelian randomization analysis. If you read this abstract, what you'll find is that there are Mendelian randomization findings support that type two diabetes and kidney disease increase TMAO levels and observational evidence for cardiovascular diseases may be due to confounding or reverse causality. The point of this paper is to illustrate the fact that when TMAO rises in type 2 diabetes and kidney disease, and then you try and associate TMAO with causing those things, it could be the fact that those diseases cause TMAO to increase and it's reverse causality. And this is what the plant-based advocates, Joel Kahn, the world expert, I hope I get him on the podcast, in TMAO are missing. And if you dig further down the rabbit hole, it all begins to make sense. In fact, here's a paper that shows that TMAO is in fact increased in people with diabetes. Diabetes is associated with higher TMAO levels. Oh, that's interesting. Do you think that we can claim that TMAO causes diabetes or that Diabetes may actually raise levels of TMAO, which could cause some confounding and cause people to get a little bit confused. And why would TMAO be harmful for us when it's found in very high amounts in things like fish? So trimethyl N-oxide, amine N-oxide in seafood. Ah, oh, interesting. TMAO, marker of seafood consumption. If you read this paper, you find that TMAO in fish is actually higher on a gram per gram basis than the amount of TMAO that would be formed if you ate meat from choline and carnitine. And yet fish has never been associated with any of the problems that TMAO is blamed for. So how is that even possible? The last thing is important to understand is that trimethylamine and trimethylamine and oxide are an FMO3 uh, dependent product, meaning that there's an enzyme in the liver called FMO3 that makes TMAO and that FMO3 can be upregulated in states of diabetes. Therefore, if you have diabetes, you may make more TMAO. It may look like TMAO is associating with these things, but again, it's reverse causality. You're accumulating more TMAO, which I don't actually believe is harmful for humans at all, and has been studied in animal models and found to decrease diastolic hypertension or diastolic heart failure, meaning problems with the heart relaxing. So TMAO has actually been used in animal models and found to be beneficial. And when you have kidney disease, you don't excrete as much TMAO. 
So any consideration of the fact that meat would be harmful for humans because of these gut-derived metabolic products, choline and carnitine, which are well known to be quite helpful for humans, is hogwash. And I can't wait to discuss that in detail with Joel Kahn, the world expert on TMAO. So if we go back to Joel's blog post, we'll wrap this up. Like I said, hopefully Joel will come on the podcast for part two and we can discuss all of this live. But um, interestingly, he cites a number of studies that look at what's called flow media dilatation. Now, I have a lot of problems with these studies for many reasons. One being that this isn't a great correlate or a really good indicator of cardiovascular health or outcomes. We know that in people with diabetes, flow media dilatation is, a, is impaired all the time. But what Joel fails to point out is that vascular function assessed by FMD is impaired by almost every single meal we eat, whether it's containing plants or animal products. There are plenty of studies that show that things like bread, blueberry muffins, these also impair, quote, vascular function with FMD. And so to point out that after a single meal, butter impaired vascular function compared to nuts and other predominantly unsaturated animal fats is really to use a, what I would consider to be a surrogate metric that doesn't really translate into cardiovascular outcomes very well. And we can't conflate this uh, to somebody with diabetes, for instance, who has impaired FMD all the time. Just so everyone understands what FMD is, we'll use good old Wikipedia. To determine the flow media dilatation, the brachial artery in the arm uh, is assessed for dilation following a transient period of forearm ischemia and measured via ultrasound. Um, they say that because the value of FMD can be compromised when improperly applied, attempts have been made to standardize the methodology for measuring FMD. It's a pretty un, in a non-accurate measure. So you're using ultrasound to look at how well your brachial artery dilates after it's compressed by a blood pressure cuff. This is, I don't think it's a great measure and especially not a great measure when most um, people who eat food have impaired FMD transiently after they eat food, even plant foods. So this is not, I think, going to be a good indicator that meat is harmful for humans. It's a pretty shaky metric to use as the main thing that, su that suggests that saturated fats are harmful for humans or that animal products are harmful for humans. As Wikipedia points out here, FMD is a stronger predictor of future cardiovascular disease events in patients with existing cardiovascular disease than in healthy, normal persons which is what most FMD is done with, is done in, that is who most FMD is done in, in many of these studies. So to use flow media dilatation as really the only metric that you could point to to suggest that saturated fat, particularly butter fat, is harmful in humans is, doesn't really add up. It doesn't make sense evolutionarily, nor do many of Joel's claims, unfortunately. We'll go ahead and finish up his ideas on the blog post here. A study comparing about two servings of daily fiber-rich whole grains to red meat for three weeks each day suggested that the whole grain diet improved gut microbiome diversity compared to red meat in the diet. I've also talked about that many times. There are so many studies to show that fiber does not increase alpha diversity. 
and that elimination of fiber does not decrease alpha diversity. You can look at uh, diet rapidly and reproducibly, alters the gut microbiome to prove that. So suggesting that fiber-rich whole grains are important for microbiota diversity will, uh, will lead you down a, a path in which the research will not support your claims. And I would, com I would compare my microbial diversity to Joel's anytime. Uh, in the past, I've shared my microbial diversity when I was on a diet of an entirely meat that was fiber-free. I was eating honey at the time and my microbial diversity was quite high. Um, we talked about TMAO. Joel says after four weeks of diet containing red meat, increased production of the pro-inflammatory compound TMAO, except it's not been shown to be pro-inflammatory in humans, Joel. So that's essentially the majority of Joel's points. We've considered the majority of the studies that he's talked about. We've talked about now why they're problematic. And we come back to the same position we were in at the end of the first conversation and debate, which is there really are no interventional studies with red meat or saturated fat from animals like tallow showing that these are harmful for humans. There is a small amount of evidence suggesting that in people who have pre-existing dysbiosis, butter fat may increase endotoxemia, but I, there is really no evidence in healthy individuals without dysbiosis that that happens. If you look at the immune stimulating properties of animal foods, as I showed with those toll-like receptor studies, beef and lamb didn't do it at all. So I don't know what Joel is talking about. There are so many interventional studies showing that red meat or organs are beneficial for humans. They don't increase CRP or other inflammatory markers. And the evolutionary precedent is clear. We've been eating these foods forever and ever and ever. We don't have to worry about excess IGF-1 and mTOR because we're doing time-restricted feeding or we're at least eating non-processed foods. We're not overly stimulating insulin. We're quite insulin sensitive. We're not having postprandial hyperinsulinemia or insulin hyperinsulinemia throughout the day. So many of these points that plant-based advocates like Joel make fall away under scrutiny. So hopefully this is a helpful rebuttal to Joel and we'll be able to come back together and do uh, another debate live in person, we'll see. But we must be careful, we can't rely on epidemiology. We must remember that humans were shaped by meat and organs in our diets. And I strongly believe that you don't need to worry about the products of cooking of meat. You don't need to worry about TMAO. You don't need to worry about heme iron. You don't need to worry about endotrisal compounds and nitrosothiols or and nitrosal compounds. You don't need to worry about these things for colon cancer or longevity, this just hasn't been shown clearly. People all over the world eating meat live long amounts of times. There were no centenarians found among the Okinawans who were vegetarians. These claims just don't add up, Joel, I'm sorry. And we'll continue to discuss them. But um, again, I would love to compare my IGF-1 to Joel's or Nimai's. I would love to compare visceral adipose tissue to these folks and when I've done my markers of health, metabolic health, et cetera, they're very good. I have very low CRP. I have done a whole episode on my insulin sensitivity, wearing a continuous glucose monitor from NutriSense, showing that I'm quite insulin sensitive. My fasting insulin is low. And the conversation of LDL is a whole different podcast. I have a calcium scan, a CT coronary, or excuse me, a, uh, a calcium score, which is zero despite my LDL, which is quote elevated. If you're interested in the way that LDL changes with an animal-based diet, listen to the six podcasts I've done on this with Dave Feldman and many others. There's probably more of those coming in the future. So 
Hopefully that's helpful. Eat like your ancestors, not like your doctor. Reclaim your birthright to radical health. Meat and organs will get you there. Uh, avoiding these things will lead to decrepitude. Um, again, let's just compare body composition um, in vegans and vegetarians who don't supplement with synthetic protein or take steroids. And I think the argument uh, is end, ended right there. So, so many healthy people thriving uh, on animal-based diets, including now George St. Pierre is doing an animal-based diet this week, uh, this month. I just wanna close with one study guys that I think is quite important. Actually, I wanna share a few studies because these obesity studies that came up when I talked to Herman Ponser are quite fascinating. So the first one is this one, which is obesity is associated with a hypothalamic injury in rodents and humans. Uh, one of the takeaways from my conversation with Herman Ponser was that when you injure the hypothalamus, people get fat. How do you injure the hypothalamus? Well, one of the ways you can do it in animal models is by soybean oil. So this is a very interesting thing to consider. And the hypothesis here would be that excess omega-6, at least content in soybean oils are damaging the hypothalamus, affecting both hypothalamic gene expression uh, of all sorts of things and the oxytocin secreting system in the brain and that that may be at the root of much obesity, but you do not want to damage your hypothalamus. And wouldn't it be scary if many of these seed oils that plant-based advocates would recommend, like Joel is recommending, are damaging the hypothalamus and leading to issues with satiety in many people. So that was one set of studies I wanted to share before I wrapped up. And the last one is this one. So if you guys heard the conversation I had with Robbie Sansom, this is important. The title of this study is Animal Source Foods, Sustainability Problem or Malnutrition and Sustainability Solution. Perspective matters. So what the authors of this study appropriately point out is that 2 billion people suffer micronutrient deficiencies in the world. And this is partly, I would say, mostly due to insufficient consumption of animal source foods. Yet animal source foods have been described by the World Health Organization as the best source of high quality nutrient rich food for children aged six to 23 months. Livestock and animal source foods are vital to sustainability as they play a critical role in improving nutrition, reducing poverty, improving gender equity, improving livelihoods, increasing food security and improving health. The nutritional needs of the world's poor, particularly women and children must be considered in sustainability debates. I love it. If you heard the podcast with Robbie Sansom, you also know that the way to have a sustainable ecosystem is by having ruminants on the land by letting cows graze the land. So I hope that Joel will have a conversation about the problems with monocrop agriculture and the sustainability of animal source foods in our lands and regenerative agriculture, which is near and dear to my heart and near and dear to our hearts at Heart and Soil. All of the desiccated organ supplements that we source are from regenerative farms, grass-fed, grass-finished. Again, meat and organs are the center of the human diet. That is my rebuttal to Joel's Furman's blog post. Stay radical, you guys. Love you all.